0: Good morning everybody. It's good to be here with you today. I'm sorry about the absence of our children's message today. We had, like uh, was alluded to earlier, some major technology issues this morning when we came into the building. We're not sure if the storm is to blame or what, so we are not able to access our children's message this morning and our children's ministry time. We hope that we'll have that available again for you uh, next week. I want to thank you so much for being here with us at Calvary Monument Bible Church today. Uh, as you consider your plans for the upcoming weeks, next week we actually have a family life hour, and we are going to have it, and I believe we're going to attempt to stream it for those that are at home with us uh, watching as well. And so we'll be looking forward to a time gathered together As a body of Christ uh, in this room next week during our ABF hour just to talk about what the Lord has done in this season. And, And many of you probably around the room would agree that he has done quite a bit, quite a bit in this season. Life is very different and very, very new and there are a lot of realities that we're facing that we'll look forward to sharing with you next week during that family life hour. We have a new memory verse for this month, and we want to say it together. I don't think it's going to be able to be on the screen today, but I believe it's in your bulletins. It's from John chapter 19, verse 30, so let's say it together. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John 19, 30. And we, of course, continue... In our study of the Gospel of John, we break open John chapter 19 today and we are walking with Jesus towards the cross of Calvary. And last week, we unpacked one of the greatest injustices in the history of mankind and we will continue to unpack that. So you want to take your Bibles, if you have them today, turn to John chapter 19 Last week we looked together at the motivations and attitudes and behaviors behind one of the most significant, if not the most significant murder in the history of the world. And we remarked that these passages, they're not easy to look at. Indeed, it would be much more comfortable probably for all of us here to look away. And yet God intends for us in his word to see the brutality imposed On his son. And you know what I think is very interesting. The longer that we gaze upon injustice. The clearer our part in it becomes. Jesus would be on the cross. Not only because of the sins of the religious leaders of that day. But also because of my sin. Because of your sin. He would take them all upon himself. At Calvary, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we continue to look upon these injustices this week. How do you respond in the face of injustice? Some of you have remarked uh, to me over the past few weeks as we've been in this part of John Pastor Chris, you really get excited when you talk about justice. And that is true. It's true. And I do, I was born into a family that is deeply committed to justice. My mother has spent her entire career working uh, for a local law firm. My aunt, my grandmother, both work for separate law firms. The three, three of the most prominent and influential women in my life worked for three different law firms... In Lancaster City. And so that is the home that I grew up in. I spent my summers working, paid by petty cash, for a local law firm in Lancaster City. As a boy, my job was to go in. All the lawyers knew I was coming. And so what do you think they would do? They would leave all of their cases and files and briefs stacked on the stairs. And it was my job to put them away, to file them. Back then, they didn't have all of everything on computers. So I was going up into... Unair conditioned attics in the city and filing papers and down into basements infested with mice and all kinds of other lovely creatures and filing papers. And when I was done, my reward was I was allowed to walk down to the local library. And because I was working in those environments, I was in the city, my heroes, the people I looked up to, they were all working in the legal profession. So when I went down to the library in the city of Lancaster, what would I do? I'd find a chair and I'd grab an autobiography and I'd read stories from men like Thurgood Marshall, Clarence Thomas. I've read Antonin Scalia and I still enjoy to this day following all of our Supreme Court justices. And as I grew older in that job in the city, I graduated from just simply filing paperwork and filing papers in Folders and all these other things to being allowed every once in a while to even go and deliver subpoenas. Talk about a scary and uncomfortable job. Very scary, very uncomfortable. Thankfully, I only had to do that a few times. But justice was just a daily part of my life growing up. That was the environment and the atmosphere that I grew up in. And I was taught at an early age by my parents, my mother, and my father to see how closely justice was related to the very heart of God and the gospel through which we have been saved. And once again, as we enter into this text today, what we see is we see an example of Jesus' leadership on display. His attitude and his actions are painting for us a vivid portrait of how we might handle And face injustice and friends we will in this world face it. And so last week we witnessed Jesus speaking truth and shining light onto the injustices that were being perpetuated against him. And this week we will explore another aspect of Jesus' character and testimony as he stands before this great injustice. Today it's our desire to learn from Jesus' example when faced with great injustice. What was Jesus' posture? What was his posture? We might also ask ourselves, what is the example of Jesus' leadership? And how does it look different from the leadership of others who are also part of this narrative? Today we're going to be in John chapter 19 verses 1 to 16 And before we read the text, let's pray. Lord, we come to you today as a body of Christ once again, seeking for you to settle the unsettled and to unsettle the settled. Lord, we know Your Spirit does that work. He goes before us through the Word. And so we pray now as we turn our eyes to this text of Scripture that the truth that You would have for us today would jump off these pages and not just go into our minds, but penetrate our hearts and cause our behaviors as we walk out of this building to look differently than they did before we came in. Father, as we Gaze upon the example of your son, we recognize that there are patterns of leadership. There's an example of leadership that he has set before us. And we seek to learn from that. We seek to be able to apply that in our own lives. And so, Lord, we pray now as we enter the text that you would do the work of the ministry, that, that your spirit would go before, and that you would change our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 19, 1 to 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, the religious leaders... See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. And When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Behold, the man. I want you to consider for a moment what Jesus endured for our sin. Matthew and Mark's Gospels expose the reality that Jesus was not just flogged, but he was also scourged. There are two different words that are used. A flogging, what we read about here in John, would have prepared someone for what would have been a later, even more painful and damaging scourging. Jesus took both. The weapon that would have been used was a whip. And at the end of the whip, there would have been tied broken pieces of sharp debris so that When a person was struck with the whip, the end of the whip would actually dig into the person's skin. So when the person whipping pulled the whip away, pieces of flesh would be ripped off the person's back. And now all of you in here, many of you in here know that a piece of exposed flesh is incredibly sensitive. And there was a condition in Jewish law. The condition in Jewish law is that a man could be whipped no more than 40 times. But Jesus is not being tried under Jewish law, is he? He's being tried under Roman law. And under Roman law there was no such provision. Which means that the beating could have endured and endured and endured And gone on and on. What we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Is that Jesus' back would have been torn open. And bleeding profusely. For many who experienced this kind of pain. And this kind of punishment. It was debilitating. And then verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. And put it. ...on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. You see those thorns on the screen. Those are the thorns of the plant that they believed was used to craft the crown of thorns. Now imagine a crown of those thorns that you see on the screen being placed on your head... It was a form of public punishment, but the purpose was more about public mockery than about pain. It was a form of punishment reserved for those who challenged the authority of Caesar. However, this does not dismiss the pain that Jesus would have endured by having this placed on his head. Now, I want you to consider what would happen with me for a second. As this crown was placed on a person's head. I can do that, okay? And I don't feel much pain. But that's not what they would do. The skin on your head is very thin. So they would place the crown of thorns on the person's head. And they would push down on the crown of thorns. And the thorns would break the skin of the person's head. And what would happen when the skin broke is that blood would roll down the person's face. And the person oftentimes was a prisoner who was bound and unable to wipe his face. So I want you to think about when you are someplace and you don't have the use of your hands. And some kind of liquid is dripping down your face. What do you have to do when you can't wipe your face? Distort it to try to keep liquid from going into your eyes and so again another form of mockery is that they would take this crown they would shove it on the king's head they would push down his head would start to bleed the blood would start to flow down and he would have to distort his face to keep the blood from going into his eyes now imagine that person now being marched out In public. What he would have looked like. The purple robe. It mocked the claim of royalty on Jesus. And the soldiers tortured him. They struck him. And they said hail. Verse 3. King of the Jews. And they struck him. With their hands. Pilate. It's amazing at this point still. Pilate wants to rid himself. Of this dilemma. And so he marches back outside. Where the religious leaders are standing. And he reminds them that he finds. No guilt. In Jesus. The religious leaders have not yet seen Jesus. In this state. His body beaten and bloodied. And punished. Perhaps now. When he comes marching out. From behind the curtain. Or from behind wherever he was. Perhaps now they would see. The grossness of what they've perpetuated. And turn from their ways and say enough. Enough. Not so. In verse 5 Jesus comes out wearing the crown and the robe. And Pilate proclaims the only truth that he is able to see. Behold the man. And friends, the irony here is that Pilate, he's unable to recognize the actual truth that he himself was professing. Indeed, Jesus was the son of man. And this is not a statement of pity. This is not Pilate having pity on Jesus. Oh, look at this poor guy. Don't you want to take him back? This is a final statement attempting to convince the religious leaders to give up, to relent. In what is, in his mind, has become a worthless pursuit. And the question remains who is in control? And it's interesting. All throughout this narrative, starting from the very first time we've met Pilate, Pilate is continuing to want to hand this off. He doesn't want to deal with this. But the die has been cast. And as the religious leaders look upon the bloodied body of Jesus, instead of mercy and compassion, the love of their law motivates their hatred. And they begin to chant... Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate, knowing that the religious leaders had no authority to crucify Jesus and most likely resenting that he was going to have to become complicit in the murder of Jesus, responds in sarcasm in the second half of verse 6. Take a look at what he says. Take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. What this statement actually does when Pilate says this is it elicits the first and the final charge against Jesus. And before we unpack verse 7, the question is begged, How many Christians, how many followers of Christ have been condemned by this same law? Notice, friends, how Jesus flipped the script for the New Testament church. We cannot miss this essential and core component of the gospel, lest we fall into the same trap as the religious leaders. It's not law that leads. It's not law that wins the day. Love must lead. Love When we lead with law, when we lead with judgment and condemning spirits, seeking to control and criticize, we find ourselves running in the same crowds as the Pharisees. Look at their justification in verse 7. You don't have to look any further than the beginning of their justification in verse 7. We have a law. Oh, they loved that law, didn't they? Far better for them to have said, we have a God, Pilate. We have a God. Our God loves us. Our God loves justice and mercy. He's good and compassionate. He's a king. Yahweh, He keeps His promises. He's a God of love. Far better if they would have said that. But instead, law and order, Pilate. Do the responsible thing, Pilate. Their actions spoke of the reality that they loved their law for far, far more than they loved the God who had given it to them. And indeed, the chief priests, they had their law, and by their law, they would now reveal their charge against Jesus. They lean into the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And we know, friends, that multiple times in John's Gospel, multiple times, the Pharisees tried to take matters into their own hands. They tried to stone Jesus. John chapter 5, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, verses 31 and 33. And each time... They were unsuccessful because it was not yet Jesus' time. By their own interpretation of the law, Jesus was a blasphemer in their minds. In their minds, Jesus was guilty of the most heinous crime that a Jew could commit. He ought to die, the end of verse 7. He ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Isn't it interesting here? Pilate, he is very curious. I think the text describes him as afraid, but we can see earlier in, at the end of John 18, Pilate is very curious about the person of Jesus. He is intrigued with Jesus. And so what does Pilate do? He, he doesn't say, okay guys, let's condemn him right here on the spot, send him out to you, we'll take him to the cross. No, he, he takes Jesus back inside. And when he does this, it appears that he's also taking a small party of the religious leaders back inside with Jesus. And then verse 9, he begins another line of questioning. Look at the loaded question in verse 9. Where are you from? Where are you from? And if you remember last week, Jesus had just finished telling Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world, nor was it from this world. Yet isn't it amazing, this time when Pilate asked Jesus the question, where are you from, Jesus could have repeated. He could have said or reiterated something he had said before. Multiple times he had told the people where he was from. But this time, Jesus is silent silent and his silence is fulfilling a prophecy in isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 he was oppressed he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent so he opened not his mouth now friends is the time for silence. Now's the time. You know, there, some of you know this. Do, do, do you have those people in your life who you know no matter what happens, you're never going to get the last word? <laughs> no matter how well you craft your argument, no matter how well you formulate your thoughts, no matter how concise you are with your words, you are never going to get the last word. There's people like that. And the reality here is that in this moment, Jesus could have explained this situation in 17 different ways. He could have gotten out a whiteboard and put a Venn diagram up there. He could have did a PowerPoint presentation. He could have delivered an Excel spreadsheet into the hands of Pilate. And Pilate would not have understood. He could not. He would not. And so there's a time, friends, in Jesus' example, there is a time to be silent. Friends, today many of us have social media accounts. We have places where we like to post things. We have places where we go to see things posted. And we've seen a lot posted, haven't we? Yeah. And there is emotions and there, are, there is anger and there is hostility ...all around us, and you know, if there is somebody in your life or not in your life... ...I find it very interesting, a lot of times these folks that troll around the internet... ...they don't use their real name, they use fake accounts... ...if there's somebody in your life or somebody who's not in your life... ...that's going to take the time to go around and comment negatively... ...on things that you post or your friends post... ...the best course of action probably is to follow the example of Jesus... And just stay silent. You're not going to get the last word. We're not going to get the last word. Nor are social media accounts a great place to have these debates. So often they spiral out of control and end up hurting more than helping. Silence is okay. Silence is okay. One of the quotes I keep in my office, I have it on my monthly calendar every week is we can be positive, we can be a positive part of the solution, or we can be silent. I love that quote. I use it a lot for myself. A great example from Jesus here in his leadership is knowing when to speak and knowing when to be silent. He knew. Jesus knew the cup that he had to drink. He knew what was coming. He knew it. And he took that cup with sinless perfection. And isn't it interesting what this silence does to Pilate? The Bible tells us when we're discussing things and talking with believers that a gentle answer does what? What does a gentle answer do? Turns away wrath. Pilate's not a believer. So Jesus' silence, his gentleness in the moment, it actually incenses Pilate. He's furious. It throws him in to a fit of rage. And if it were the Jews, if the Jewish leaders, if the religious leaders of the day were leading with their law and order, then Pilate was leading with his positional authority. Both forms of leadership, as we see in our text, are destructive. Verse 10, Pilate's next two questions. Look at what he says. You will not speak to me. He thought he was doing Jesus a favor. You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the mm, that word? Authority. I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you. One group of people leading by law and order, one group of people leading by, or one person leading by positional authority. Friends, neither are effective forms of leadership. In the question in verse in verse nine, Jesus remains silent. He's composed. He's showing a form of love. He's showing. That though he was the king of kings and the lord of lords. That he had no kingdom or empire in need of protection. For no one had the power or authority to take it away from him. And now in verse 10. In verse 10 Jesus demonstrates real power. By speaking truth both clearly and concisely. Now he's no longer silent. Look at these beautiful words in verse 11. Exquisitely composed by Jesus. Careful. Careful. I mean, Jesus is about to go on the cross. Every word he says has to be measured and considered. And this is what he says, verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin and with that breath jesus shatters the self-perceived autonomy and authority of Pilate. in the first half of this truth in verse 11 jesus reminds us that there is no one on this planet no one on this earth who wields power autonomously Jesus has not fallen into Pilate's hands. Pilate's hands have no authority over Jesus that God hasn't granted. So first he shatters Pilate's self-perceived autonomy and positional authority. And then in the second half of his response, he turns his attention to the true cowards in this narrative. The true cowards in this narrative are the Pharisees, aren't they? Oh, they look so brave and bold. Oh, they look so righteous. Law, law, law. You see, Pilate knew no better. He was a carnal, unregenerate man living according to the natural law. This is all he knew, friends. Remember when he said, what is truth? I don't even know what is truth. What are you talking about? He's not aware of the depths of Judaism. He has no idea. But friends, those who had a knowledge of the law, those who thought by their condemnation that they were somehow justified in what they were doing, those who believed that their attitudes and behaviors in these moments were somehow honoring to God, those who would have claimed the name of Yahweh themselves, these men had the greater sin. They were the real blasphemers. But let's not forget. They still believed. These were the same men. Remember last week. They still believed that they, even in their complicity, in the murder of Jesus, that they were still somehow undefiled and clean and could partake in Passover. What an incredible twist of irony. The Pharisees might later gather and celebrate their liberation feast under the cloud of their Savior being held captive, bound, beaten, and hung to die. You get this picture of this good old boys' club raising their chalices, offering their cheers while they slop down their Passover lamb. Ignorant of the fact that they've just perpetuated the greatest injustice in human history. And friends, their blindness should make our hearts break. And their blindness should give us cause to pause. And check our own hearts. What we witness here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. What we are witnessing as Jesus moves to the cross is the end of of a man or man who leads by law the end of men who strive to protect their kingdoms and their empires here on earth who seek to accumulate crowns those who care more about being right in their own eyes than being loving in the eyes of god their sin was greater And so Pilate faced with this immense social pressure. I want you to consider for a second the social pressure that Pilate's under. If Pilate does nothing, the Roman government is going to find out and he is going to get in trouble. He's tried to resist. And every time he's tried to resist, he's been met with opposition. And an ominous threat to his position in the Roman Empire. Look down at verse 12. If you release this man... If you release this man. This is the religious leader speaking to Pilate. You are not Caesar's friend. Don't do this Pilate. You don't want to do this. Everyone who makes himself a king. Opposes Caesar. And so if Pilate were not to act. He's directly in violation. Undermining the rule and the reign of Tiberius. Who was Caesar at the time. And this would have equated in his life to political self-destruction. So upon hearing these words, Jesus is brought back out by the soldiers. And isn't it interesting what happens? Pilate takes his place. Where? On a judgment seat. And oh, someday how the tables will be turned. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. Most scholars agree it was probably nearing, but not yet noon, which would have been the sixth hour, so some suggest that we're looking at a time between 9 and 10 a.m., our time. And Pilate looks to the Jews and professes the third title attributed to Jesus in our passage today. If you go up to the beginning of our passage, Hail, King of the Jews! In the middle of our passage. Behold the man. And now at the end. Behold your king. And they cried out in verse 15. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. They could no longer stand. Being in the presence of the Messiah. He must be sent away. He must be crucified. They had no clue. That though they are complicit. In the murder of Jesus, that their complicity was allowed by the sovereign God who would see Jesus raised up as the bronze serpent in the wilderness so that everyone who looked unto him would be saved. And Pilate is very, very patient with these religious leaders. It's amazing what he does here. He gives them one final escape, one final way out. One final opportunity to recognize the egregiousness of their error. The end of verse 15. What does he say? Shall I crucify your king? Do you really want me to do this? I don't want to do it. Do you really want me to do this? And the response is terrifying but yet should not surprise us. The religious leaders seize the moment to announce their allegiance. Not to the King of Kings. Not to the Lord of Lords. Not to Yahweh, their covenant-keeping God. They seize the moment to pledge their allegiance to Caesar politically motivated maneuver that one would firmly deny. By doing this, they're giving up their national heritage as children of the one true living God and King. And you know, it's interesting, there's a scene in the book of Daniel. Many of us know the book of Daniel. We remember this scene. There are these three men in the book of Daniel. What are their names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they're told... In the book of Daniel, they have to bow to a pagan god and they refuse to participate even by threat of their very own lives. And in the end of the narrative, they're tossed into a fiery furnace. But before they're tossed in, they proclaim that they wouldn't bow. And even if God didn't save them, they would have no reservations about not bowing. Their king was Yahweh. They would bow to no other and flash forward. Into this scene and watch the religious leaders kneel and kiss the feet of Caesar. I would have to imagine that Pilate was a bit confused, maybe even perplexed, because the Jewish population was not always known to be so compliant and adoring towards Caesar. This is hatred. That's fueling their behavior. And perhaps it was that final pronouncement. That final hail to Caesar. When Pilate knew that there was no more that he could do. There was nothing else that he could do. This was going to happen. And so verse 16. He delivered Jesus over to them. The guards. To be crucified. And that was that. The guards would move forward with Jesus towards the next phase of his crucifixion. One we will break down and explore further next week. And we remember this text that's so relevant in Isaiah. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. So how might our lives look in light of these realities? Well, friends, there are three kinds of leadership on display throughout this narrative. We have one group of people attempting to lead by law and order. Then we have Pilate who's attempting to lead with his positional authority. And finally we have Jesus who's composed, he's loving, he's powerful, and though he is bound, he is the one who is truly free. Jesus is committed to his mission. He's fulfilling his purpose. He's not distracted by the obstacles before him. He's Concerned with honoring his father and loving people. And the authorities in the Roman government, they had no real power over Jesus. Just like the religious leaders had no real power over Jesus. And friends, this same Jesus, I'm reminded of our brother Emmanuel's message every time I use that phrase. You remember brother Emmanuel up here a little over a year ago? This same Jesus, the same Jesus lives and dwells with us. Why would we believe and live any differently than he? And now here is a striking reality to consider. We can't miss this, friends. Turn your gaze back to the religious leaders. We can't let them off the hook yet because we can't let ourselves off the hook yet. It was hatred that led them to pick up stones. It was jealousy That led them to strike the face of Jesus. It was pride that kept them from releasing Jesus. It was fear that motivated their attitudes and behaviors towards Jesus. It was corruption and the love of money that caused Jesus to be betrayed. It was betrayal that brought denial against our Messiah. It was ignorance that forced the hand of Pilate against Jesus. It was silence that perpetuated the torment and punishment that Jesus faced. It was the love of power and a desire to control and manipulate that marched Jesus around the city of Jerusalem in the dead of night to be tried by Annas and Caiaphas. It was shame that caused his closest followers to flee. It was murder when he died on the cross. And friends, those sins didn't just belong to the religious leaders. They belong to me. They belong to you. And here's the beauty of what Jesus did on the cross. And get ready, because this is where we're going next week. Jesus took that hatred... He took that jealousy, he took that pride, that fear, that corruption, that love of money, that betrayal, the denial, the ignorance, the silence, the love of power, the desire to control, manipulate, shame. He took the murder, he took it on the cross and he said, I got this. I got this. I love you. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And today, whether you are at home or whether you're here in the building, you need to hear and know that that was for you and that was for me. And I believe that there may be some listening today who have not received that forgiveness. In a congregation this size, whoever's watching from home, I believe there's some today who may not know Jesus, may not have received His forgiveness and His love. And what I need for you to know today is that this love and forgiveness is available to you. And receiving it will change your life forever. Perhaps right now is the first time in your life that you've actually believed this. And if that's the case, now is the time to confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And the Bible says you will be saved. Would you bow your heads? this is happening in your hearts right now then the holy spirit is accomplishing the work of salvation redemption and forgiveness right now in and through you maybe you have been one who've lived bound by the law your whole life and you've seen yourself shoulder to shoulder with the pharisees over the past few weeks and today is the day you want to flip the script and make a commitment between you and jesus that from here on out love's going to lead Father, this is our corporate desire. Our corporate desire is that you would help us in our personal lives to flip the script. Help us to move from wanting to be law-loving, responsible people to being people who are loving so that we can be responsible in your eyes. Help us care more about being loving in your eyes than being right in our own. Help us define what this looks like by our example and by your testimony of mercy, compassion, grace, and love. We ask you today... Lord, you have to accomplish this new command through us. We are inadequate to love as you have loved. But yet through your spirit at work within us, we can honor you with our actions and our words. And we pray, Father, that as we go today, that that would be the testimony of our lives. Not on our own power, not on our own effort, not on our own strength. But on yours. On your ability that is perfect. And Lord, we need you. We need you to point out our weakness. We need you to help us see where we've participated in sins that perhaps we still are ignorant of. We need you to point out our blind spots. We need you to direct our attentions and align our hearts with yours. We need you to help us give you the glory that you deserve.